0: Welcome back, my friends, to AA Recovery Interviews. I'm your host, Howard L., and I'm an alcoholic, sober since January 1st, 1988, one day at a time. I'm grateful you've joined us. AA Recovery Interviews is the podcast where AA members share their extraordinary stories of experience, strength, and hope. My guest today is Jim D., whose life as an alcoholic began with an addiction to morphine when he was 14 administered four times a day while he was hospitalized after a serious surgery, Jim found that morphine did more than just kill the pain. It helped him escape the mental pains he felt from childhood on. But morphine was difficult to get, and he soon found that increasing amounts of alcohol would have largely the same results. So he didn't stop drinking or using drugs until he was 46. Jim's life prior to sobriety was the familiar odyssey of drinking and drug use, to which so many alcoholics in AA can relate. But the biggest challenges and threats to his sobriety occurred after he had joined AA. At 13 months sober, his wife of 17 years was found dead from a drug overdose suicide. After nearly four years sober, a drunk driver caused a nearly fatal motorcycle accident for Jim that landed him in the hospital for three and a half months of multiple surgeries for shattered bones and a brain injury. Released to a life of chronic pain, he also lost his beloved career as a symphonic musician. Later on in his sobriety, Jim lost his best friend to suicide. More recently, as the only child, Jim has been caring for his 91-year-old mother, who's been very sick, handling the tragedies that have befallen him during sobriety, as well as the gifts that have come from it. Jim has stayed firmly planted in the action part of his AA program, sponsoring other men, and ceaseless service work has never failed to improve the quality of his sobriety, no matter what he faces in life. Jim's story is both courageous and captivating. It provides a roadmap for navigating troubled times and an inspiring optimism for living a happy life in the midst of Alcoholics Anonymous. So please enjoy this episode of AA Recovery Interviews with my fine friend and AA brother, Jim D.
1: My name is Jim. I'm an alcoholic.
0: Hi, Jim. I'm so glad you could be on the AA Recovery Interviews podcast with me today. I've been Wanting to have you on the show for a long time. And I know life has been throwing a lot of stuff at you over the last year. And I want to hear more about how you've been able to get through all of that. Because I know some of the situations have been very dire and tragic and difficult. But you've stayed sober the whole time, haven't you? Yes, I have. And that's an amazing accomplishment as far as I'm concerned. Um, So you and I met, I guess, did did we know each other before Zoom? I'm trying to think. You knew my sponsor pretty well, Mike, right? Yes. Yeah. From
1: one of my very early, my 1993
0: sobriety. That's amazing. Yeah, Mike's a... He's been my sponsor for the last 33 years.
1: Wow. He just called me uh, yesterday.
0: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, he, well, you know, he particip- still participates in this meeting online, on the Zoom meeting, every Sunday night.
1: I didn't know we had an online version of it. We meeting.
0: do have an online version. It was, the, it was the version that whenever it was we got back together. Uh, the Zoom version continued for those men who didn't feel comfortable enough coming back into the live meeting. Okay. And so that's just kind of But continued. not a
1: Wednesday night though, right?
0: No, okay. not, not, that I, not that I know of. And unlike some of the other meetings that have managed to put together the video along with the live meeting, we don't, this room does have the capabilities, but it wouldn't work very well with the sound and everything. So, um, but yeah, in answer to your question, yeah,
1: I don't think I knew you before Zoom.
0: Yeah, yeah, you were, it seems like, People who've been in the program for a long time or been around AA a long time sometimes cannot know each other 30 years later because we go to different meetings and when we live in different parts of town. Now, you've been sober how long?
1: 16 plus years.
0: And what's your sobriety date?
1: 12-12-05.
0: 12 uh, and 12 12 <laughs> that makes it easy to remember i'll i'll remember that date for future for future reference was that your first time trying to get sober of course not <laughs> what, uh, what what was your first stint when was your first stint in aa
1: 1992 i got married in 91 mm-hmm. and i was in treatment in march of 92 uh-huh and uh, it was for the same thing i came in this time for a crack brought me to my knees, but I was been an alcoholic since I took my first drink.
0: And when was that?
1: Well, actually before I had my first drink. Oh. I'll tell you tell you yeah. the where it began. Yeah. When I was fourteen, my mother had to teach because my parents had divorced when I was nine. Uh-huh. I developed a ruptured appendix. Mm-hmm. And by the time my mother was willing to take a day off and take me to the, really see the doctor, yeah, I was getting sicker and sicker every day. When I, we finally went to the doctor on Friday. He took one look at me, put me in the hospital. I went to the hospital. They did a four-hour surgery, and I was in the hospital for a month. And every four hours, they brought me morphine. And not only did it take the physical pain away, mm-hmm. it took the emotional pain away. I'll bet. And my God, I look for Because I thought, you know, when my parents divorced, I woke up that morning. I heard them yelling again. I mm-hmm. went into the kitchen and my mother was and my father were yelling. And my father had said he was bitching about not having clean underwear. And my thought was, if only I knew how to work a washing machine. Yeah. My parents would still be together. Yeah. Anyway, after a month in the hospital, I finally got out. And a week later, I went to the gastroenterologist for to a checkup. And I went in there and I convinced him that I needed to go back in the hospital and that my pain was so bad, he would put me back on morphine again. So at 14, I was an addict. Then when I couldn't sleep, after I got out of this hospital, mm-hmm. my mother, thinking she was doing me a favor, did what her mother had done to her. They gave me a shot of whiskey, a whiskey to put me to sleep.
0: And it worked, didn't it? And it, it
1: worked yeah. every
0: night. <laughs> you know, I've heard those, those folk remedies have gotten people into a lot of trouble. In fact, the very first interview I did was with Adam M. And whenever they would have a sore throat or anything else when they were kids, as young as three years old, they would give him a shot of, of whiskey and just a little bit. But, you know, a, a small body and a little bit of whiskey still. He said that that was just the folk remedy for things. So you were addicted, but were you at the point where you couldn't get it anymore? So you just turned to alcohol? Yeah. How long did, uh, did it take for you to make the transition? Was that pretty quick?
1: Well, I, I went to pot while I was still in high school. Oh, you did, okay, yeah. yeah. Uh, so I was drinking and smoking pot uh, from sophomore year on. Huh. I'd been in the hospital my freshman year, okay. so it was a kind of nonstop from then on.
0: Were you hanging with a group of people? No, I was hanging with the winners. I had a
1: four point oh grade point average. I was, I had a, I was in the Fort Worth Symphony as a senior in college, in high school. Wow, I, I was a wunderkind, child prodigy. Prodigy,
0: yeah. that's amazing. So.
1: I was different than them,
0: but uh, they weren't drinking and, and doing pot, were they? Sure, they
1: were. Oh, they were. The, the, I'm talking about the crowd at at, school, at that, school that had the reputation, yeah, for for doing the drugs and the alcohol. You weren't I, part. Of- I, I wasn't them. No, I was better than them. So. Ah, yes.
0: Okay. Uh huh. <laughs> yeah, I get it. I get it. So you were hanging with the the winners, and were you were you drinking and smoking and carrying on with them, or you were just hanging with them and doing the the booze and drugs on your own
1: to a point I was doing it with them Mm -hmm. because we all did that
0: oh you did okay
1: but I was already beyond the point where I could share that with other people because they would see say Jim you know enough is enough (laughs) and it's you know it's just another one of the lies I was telling myself like I'm better than them I'm not like those people over there it was just the beginning of the end but it took a long time to get to the end and you know, I didn't come in in my 20s or my 30s. It was my, I was 46 when I finally got stupid enough to trust somebody and listen to what they had to say without arguing with them.
0: I've interviewed people who it's taken even longer than that. And it makes you wonder, people look back and say they wish they had done it earlier. I heard a guy speak the other day, he was 94 years old, and he got sober in 1962. 60 years sober, and... Then I talked to other people. I've known people who've gotten sober in their 70s and died with 10 or 15 years Mm -hmm. sober, which is amazing to me. But you started when you were in high school. You just continued on through college.
1: My parents paid for about one semester Uh and then I got a free education. It was a dual degree program back then. Yeah. So I had to stay five years Mm -hmm. and then I got my bachelor's and my master's simultaneously.
0: Mm -hmm. In music?
1: Yes, and one of those semesters, though, was an apprenticeship. And I went on tour with the touring organization mm-hmm. for, their, for their studio, Singers. Sure. We were having, we, we had the drink, drinking on the bus all day <laughs> long. And we had the Coke mailed to every hotel we were staying at. We had a gram of cocaine mailed to us that would meet us each day of our itinerary.
0: How many people were, were doing that out of this big group of people was there just a subgroup that was doing this, or were most of the people doing it? What was the prevalence?
1: We were the only people getting Coke
0: mailed to us Coke, yeah but
1: but the alcohol back then, if you were a musician, you drank to excess,
0: yeah, even before performances or
1: I wasn't at that point yet right i could, right. I could wait until after the performance to drink, or I'd use the Coke. To get rid of the alcohol and play the performance.
0: So on Coke, you could play the performance and probably do it flawlessly, right? Uh, Yeah. That's interesting. Which to me makes it that much harder for somebody to quit when you can excel at what you do while you're under the influence. Exactly. It's that functioning, that functional drunk that is the downfall for a lot of people. I was that way when I was in school. I was stoned and, and drunk most of the time, but I got really good grades. And I got through school you know, it was, it was a breeze to get through school. But that made me think if anybody said, I think you have a problem. I said, no, I don't look at my grades. Look at this. Look at that. Look at these achievements. And it, it, it's almost contrary when somebody has an addiction to say to them, you got to do something about your addiction and your life is going really well with it.
1: Yeah. I mean, I heard somebody else use alcoholic and my name together when I was 21. Yeah. And I was like, I just graduated with a 3.8 from rice. How can you say <laughs> I'm a fucking alcoholic, you
0: know? <laughs> what was your behavior tipping them off? Oh, yeah. I'm sure it was. So what was going on when you would when you would get inebriated? Arrogance. Yeah.
1: Tremendous arrogance covering the I'm not good enough if they really knew who I was. Mm-hmm. All of those fears that come up when we finally do an honest four-step. Mm, yeah. Yeah. And that those came all the way from, from my first report card. Yeah. My mother was a teacher, not then, because right. my father wouldn't let her teach. Mm-hmm. But you remember we had U uh E's, S's, and N's. N's and U's. N's, right. I had on my very first report card, six years old, I was so proud. Straight A's and straight S's. Yeah. My mother wanted to know how come I didn't make any E's. Yeah. And my father was, I expect no less. Ooh. So for the next twelve years, I never made anything less than an A. Yeah. Howard. yeah. 12 years yeah. of straight A's.
0: That's amazing. Well, and that that satisfies the dysfunctional upbringing. It, it gives you a it gives you a way to please your parents but doesn't do anything good for you, does it?
1: I didn't think it was doing any good at all. That's why I used the morphine, the alcohol, the pot, whatever yeah. I could take to change the way I felt.
0: Yeah, I get that. When you were drinking, you mentioned that you would get arrogant. And were you a belligerent drunk or were you laid back? What was your demeanor?
1: I wasn't belligerent physically, yeah, but verbally. Not only were you wrong, you were very wrong and I was going to make you feel it.
0: Oh, that's
1: tough. And I, of course, was never wrong.
0: So is that a throwback to your folks Were they have that type of people that they were never wrong?
1: Yeah, my father especially. Yeah.
0: You know what's sometimes really sad, I think, when I think about it, is when I look at my behavior sometime and I I can make a direct linkage to my behavior with the way my dad was. And for years, before we had children, that's one of the things that scared me about having children, was the type of upbringing I had, which was horrendously, It was a, it was a very, very bad place to be. I mean, my brother joined the army in 1967 and went to Vietnam in 1968, the worst year of the war, to escape the home. Mm. He went to Vietnam to get out of the house. That's how bad it was. And yet, Whenever it was my wife and I were ready to have kids, I thought, oh, man, I don't want to revisit visit that. And I didn't. But there was that fear. And that, to me, was one of the things I've been able to deal with and overcome in AA. But your your the way you were treating people sounds like it had the potential or the effect of alienating a lot of folks.
1: It did. And I never got to the point where I was comfortable enough to have children.
0: Mm, mm-hmm. hmm
1: and it's for the best.
0: Yeah. Was I that... wish
1: I had a grown children now because I'm... Yeah. But um, I would have been a shitty father.
0: think so? Yeah.
1: yeah. I was an alcoholic and an addict the whole time.
0: By the time you, you were in AA, though, and, and around other men who had recovered in AA and were leading pretty decent lives and raising children did you ever think that maybe you could get from them what you needed to be able to buoy you up and, and support you in having children or raising children? Did you ever feel that way? Like maybe now I can do it.
1: That wasn't a possibility, Howard. Yeah. When I got sober, my wife and I had been estranged Mm. for a year. And, um, When I was 13 months sober, Mm -hmm. her body was found by her best friend in her apartment. Janet had been in treatment five times, but she, unlike the rest of us, she did have the the guts to take her own life. Hmm. Hmm. And... uh, Sorry to hear that. She uh, overdosed on trazodone, Mm -hmm. which is a, you know, like prescription... uh, Oh, I'm trying to remember the name of the drugs I can never remember had 747 on the back of the pill yeah oh what was that called
0: now Quaaludes
1: yes Quaaludes, Quaaludes. thank you yeah yeah oh. is that, uh, uh, Trazodone is, is just like Quaaludes oh, boy. and you put that with alcohol yeah but um,
0: was she so she was an addict on the on the pills
1: at the end she was like me but she had so many. I didn't realize how many secrets she had when she died okay and we were married 17 years wow but we had even talked about children before we ever got engaged, uh-huh. and neither one of us wanted children.
0: Okay, that made the choice that you had decided for yourself easier to carry out than had you married somebody who immediately wanted to have children. Right. Maybe they could have talked you into it, or maybe you still, you know, would have would have turned out the same way.
1: I was thirty-two,
0: 32. at that point
1: in time, too. Yeah. So yeah. you know, if I'd had children then, those children would only have been. 14 when i got sober right so they would have had a that's why i was saying they wouldn't have been grown like most kids are when you're 46
0: yeah did your late wife did she have coexisting mental health uh, issues as well like depression or uh, bipolar or that sort of thing or what was it all around the addictions
1: she had depression at the end but if you're drinking that much Alcohol a depressant. Yeah, but she didn't. I mean, I am manic depressive. She right. didn't have she didn't have bipolar disorder. Mm-hmm. I I do. Right. Um. So, but her 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 depression came, I think, from alcohol. It did. But I don't know that for a fact. Like I said, sure. I kept finding things out after she died that I I didn't even know. I'm glad I found her diary and not her family when we cleaned out her apartment
0: got to learn a lot yeah. from that?
1: Well, I got to keep it from them. Mm. They didn't need to know those things. Hmm.
0: That's tragic. So y- were you still using and drinking when she uh, when she committed suicide? No,
1: I've been sober 13 months.
0: Okay, 13 yeah,
1: months. That's a dangerous time.
0: <laughs> yeah, because you start to see that your life is turning around, but it doesn't feel so solid yet, right? So you
1: just picked up that ear chip. You yeah,
0: know? yeah.
1: I, pick, I picked it up. In December 12th of 2006, and it was uh, January 27th, I think, of 2007 that this happened. And the first thing I did, of course, was call my sponsor. And right. I already had a, a sponsee. That really helped. Oh, i bet. Man, I'll bet. that made all the difference.
0: Now, at that time, you had regular meetings that you were going to? Mm-hmm. Home, was, home groups and that kind of thing?
1: Well, I was going to meetings every every, every day, day still yeah. after, after a year.
0: So people had gotten to know you well enough to really care about you from a personal standpoint, or had you not gotten to that point yet?
1: When I got to AA, like everybody else, I was apart from. It took me a while to be a part of. But there's times in sobriety, even now, when I feel apart from, not a part of, mm-hmm. and I think that's either bipolar disorder or maybe it's just somebody shared earlier about the road getting narrower. Mm-hmm. Maybe the road is just getting narrower. It's something I'm, I'm working with my sponsor with right now. I, I don't know how to be except honest now. Yeah, too honest sometimes.
0: Well, yeah, you're right, <laughs> and that's right. And there's always a, there's always a, there's a fine line, oftentimes, between who to share that total honesty with. And usually the sponsor or in the case of somebody who's in, in uh therapy or counseling of some sort, maybe those people. But the other part of what that man said about the road getting narrower was he said he tended to beat himself up over going off the path. In other words, you know, he's he's hitting the guardrails on the side and beating himself up about it, but he's still on the road, mm-hmm. which to me is one of the one of the greatest risks to my sobriety is believing that just because I make a mistake, all is lost. Catastrophizing is a way of life.
1: That's, that's it. I mean, Stephen tells me, Jim, quit beating yourself up. Mm. Yeah. So I, I know I'm doing it, and I do it anyway. So.
0: Yeah. So the man who took you through, your, through the steps, how soon after you got into the program did you connect with him?
1: While I was still at the treatment center.
0: Okay. So you got it You got it right on top of it right yeah. away. Yeah. Did he methodically take you through the steps during that uh, that first year? He
1: read that book to me. Yeah. <laughs> and I was thinking, wait a minute, who's got the Rice degree here? <laughs> <laughs> and he said, shut up. Mostly what I did,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and it's the, one of the hardest things I've ever had to do, but that's what getting sober is. Right is I had to keep my mouth shut, Howard. Mm. I had to listen, not ask why, not, you know, it was time to just listen. Yeah. Not get into a debate, an argument, trying to what, how, when, who, where, what.
0: Yeah.
1: It it didn't matter anymore. What mattered is that I listened. Yeah. Because this man knew knew something I didn't. He Mm. knew how to stay sober.
0: Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
1: Unfortunately, he didn't know how to stay sober. He went out over a woman Hmm. with 17 years.
0: Hmm. Did he ever make it back in? No. Is he still alive? No. Hmm. So that answers that question, right? Doesn't it? That must have been difficult for you.
1: I had already uh, gotten my uh, steven is my sponsor okay good Yeah, good when, when i was uh, three and a half years sober i was uh on my way to the international serenity run in rally in cedar edge colorado mm. and uh, i was taking the back roads there highway highway 36 all the way to abilene and when i got past fort hood there's a little town called hamilton i don't remember any of this but it's on the police report a city councilman Came out of the dr- drive through liquor store right onto the freeway at 10 miles an hour. It's a two-lane freeway. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. And we were going 75, mm. which was the speed limit. The police report says that I cut to the shoulder, mm. and he cut me off on the shoulder. And oh. then I went off-road for about a mile before uh, I lost control of the bike. Oh, my god! And um, I woke up. It took six weeks before I knew who I was. Mm. I woke up one morning in a hospital. I didn't know how I'd gotten there. I called the nurse's button to find out, and I had no idea six weeks. You had no memory of Not one. The worst stuff I was healed from, but, um, yeah, I had a subarachnoid hemorrhage in my brain, a lot of diffuse axonal injury, Mm. every rib broken, collarbone broken, shoulder blade shattered.
0: It's amazing you survived.
1: God's not done with me. That's why I survived that.
0: And how long were you sober when that when that happened? Three and a half years. Three and a half years.
1: It was in it was on July twenty ninth, two thousand nine.
0: Were you uh riding up there alone or with yep. others?
1: I was riding alone. But I had ridden across this country many times alone. Right, right. All the way to Canada mm. going to rallies alone. That, that, what was odd is that I, I deliberately went on that highway instead of the interstates to avoid something like this. Yeah. But it never occurred to me that I would get in a wreck on, on the, on the market or back roads, right. so to speak. And of course, uh, one of my sponsees got me a good lawyer before I even knew who I was. Mm-hmm. And we had a one and a half million dollar lawsuit ready to file on this guy. hmm but the investigator for the attorney said that he was going to file bankruptcy. So I had to settle for his automobile liability, and I got two-thirds of that after the lawyer took his third, and and the accident reconstruction and the investigator. So those came off the top, after which my my two-thirds was two years of my salary, was what I got out of that. And I spent the next decade going in and out off of long-term disability until the orchestra finally said, we can't keep doing this, Jim. This, they, they told me a season in advance, next season's going to be your last season. Mm-hmm. Then we're going to give you three more years of long-term disability, and then we're going to retire you. Mm-hmm. So they did it very nicely for a yeah. guy with, and I retired with 32 and a half years of service.
0: Mm-hmm. But you were you were gone so much because of the recurring right. medical situations.
1: I just could not recover from one of those surgeries that I'd undergone to save my life.
0: Has it since? No. So it's one of those recurrent wounds that won't heal.
1: It's uh, neurological. Yeah. It's all of my uh, catalytic nerves from my spinal cord around my rib cage and to my sternum. Every time they expand, there's pain. Wow. So I live in chronic Intractable pain.
0: I'm sorry to hear that.
1: It's hard.
0: Uh, let me ask you something. How do you how do you stay grateful in the midst of that?
1: By making a difference in others' lives. Hmm. That's the I mean I, I can't play the cello anymore. It's all yeah. I ever did. Yeah. But what I can do is pay it forward. So that's what I do. I did it by teaching for mm-hmm. 14 years every Friday afternoon. And then I've done it through sponsorship. Mm-hmm. And I do it by showing up at meetings, whether I share or not. Mm. And then when I, if I'm called on, I try to stick to the topic, stick to what's in the book, not make up my own.
0: Yeah. <laughs> you know, hearing your story right now, it, it, it makes me feel like I wish I had heard it 20 years ago, but I know I've heard variations because if you stick around these meetings and you know this for a fact, you stick around these meetings long enough, you're going to see people go through everything human beings can possibly endure and stay alive. Yours was an accident, but the consequences just sound horrendous.
1: Well, the irony makes it hilarious, doesn't it?
0: Yeah, he's coming it out was, of a liquor store. It was the wrong driver? <laughs> <laughs> was he, he- cited?
1: He couldn't, the, the cop, this was a one cop town. Yeah. They were lunch buddies. The cops sent him home without a ticket. Oh, the five witnesses called uh, DPS. DPS showed up, toward that cop a new asshole, yeah. then went to the, this meant was a city councilman. Yeah. They went to the city councilman's house, but since he was home now, they could not legally breathalyze him. Oh no. So no, yeah. he wasn't charged with, with intoxicated driving. Jeez. But put two and two together. He came straight out of a liquor store. The woman in his, in the passenger seat was not his wife. Mm. That's in the police report, too. <laughs> and and he entered the freeway at 10 miles an hour. Yeah. And then cut me off at 10 miles an hour. That's not sober driving. And the cop wouldn't even test him. The cop said, go home. And so I pray, you know, for a drunk driver who ended my career yeah. every night. I still have to do that. I'll, I'll never quit doing that. Yeah. Because that's a hard one to get past. The prayer started out with God, give that bastard whatever he deserves. (laughs) Only God gets to say what he (laughs) deserves,
0: not Jim. Yeah. yeah.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah.
0: Well, hopefully he's gotten what he deserves, whether it was living with what he did or, but who knows? I mean, it's not, it's, it's, it's about you now. It's not about him. You said that when you went off the road, you went for a mile before finally falling. What was going through your mind when you got cut off there? Were you, were, I don't remember. Don't remember. No,
1: I don't remember this. Yeah. That's all erased. I grew up racing motorcycles, so that explains why I was able to go so far at such high speed and slow the bike down, which probably saved my life. You I went, went down to- on my right side based on all the damage It's on my, none of my left side was hurt. It was all right side. Collapsed lung, broken ribs, all that stuff was all right side. Wow.
0: So that happens three and a half years into your sobriety. You're back in the hospital. You're back around methadone and morphine. Did you have any of that euphoric recall to any degree or were you just in so much pain that It wasn't about getting morphine for something other than It was
1: about the pain.
0: It was about the pain.
1: I mean, I had a program.
0: Men that you sponsored and your sponsor, were meetings being brought in? Not one. Not one. My
1: sponsor came one time. Mm. That was the guy I told you that went out. Yeah. He came to the hospital to visit me one time in those whole three and a half months. No meeting ever.
0: Mm.
1: And when I got out of the hospital... I lent him $4000 that I never saw again. Mm. It was after that that I got a new sponsor.
0: And and that's un that's unusual. I'm sorry that you had to go through that kind of experience with AA. You know, our our responsibility pledge, whenever anybody anywhere reaches out for help, I want the hand of AA to always be there and for, and that, for that I, I am, am responsible. responsible. Includes not just people out there but people in here, people in the rooms. That it sounds so unusual that people who you knew and people that you sponsored and your sponsor wouldn't put together something like that. Do you have residual feelings about that? Does that still bug you, or resentments that you might have had that you've worked through, or what? What was the outcome of all that?
1: There was nothing really associated with that. The the stuff I worked through with with my new sponsor
0: mm-hmm.
1: were uh, issues over my late wife.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, he had me go up. He had me do a four-step on her, and then he had me write her a love letter mm. and go up to where her ashes were, read her that love letter, and burn it. Mm. And that helped tremendously. But I still needed help beyond what AA could give me, and I went and I got help. Yeah. She helped me for years.
0: Yeah, I knew. She and was a wonderful woman. She, was, she was amazing. She helped a lot, a lot of people. And w- when this comes out, I will anonymize her, but she was a therapist. I'm
1: glad you know her.
0: Yeah, she was she a was, uh she was one of those people that has saved a lot of lives in what she did.
1: What she did for me got me to go and uh, uh, go, go and get my LCDC. Yeah. And I went, uh, I I went through the uh, apprenticeship with my with the same psychiatrist who had who had put me in the hospitals.
0: Oh, <laughs> man. In,
1: a, in a white straight jacket, <laughs> and now I'm wearing a white lab jacket, <laughs> and we're going to the same
0: hospital. Oh my gosh. And then uh doing your practicums or I your... did the
1: practicum after 1500 hours and I was the the, the was going to retire me of course and I asked myself was it worth it to me to put in the money it was going to take in, out of retirement funds
0: mm-hmm.
1: and I'm on social security for the disabled that's right. where my money comes from right uh-huh. um to start something in my 60s yeah and at 1500 hours and the stories those women were telling me Ripped me apart what they had gone through, yeah, and I thought, Can I do another twenty five hundred hours of this because it's four thousand hours for your yeah. internship, yeah. yeah, and i I said, no, I can't do it, yeah, so it's one of the few things that I didn't get to the end of, and didn't beat myself up because of it,
0: yeah well, you probably did good work in those fifteen hundred hours, I mean there's no reason to to doubt that you needed to do more than that if it was a decision that you made, right? I had, I sponsored a man who had gone into the LCDC and he was, he was I don't know, waist deep in it for a while and the paperwork drove him out of his mind mm. and the number of hours and it seemed like the, the, the goal was like a million miles off mm. because he was also in his, in his early 60s at the time And I don't know whether it was just a function of age or experience or whatever, but as I think happens, a lot of people in recovery who go into the mental health field, the helping, the social worker type jobs, the LCDCs, LPCs, whatever they are, is that they don't recognize or realize the amount of actual work is involved before you ever see somebody, before you ever talk to somebody I've had a couple of sponsees get very disillusioned with that. Have you, have, do you know, have you, did you feel that way? Or do you know people who have had that experience?
1: Yeah. And I think it's much better. You get to make a difference much easier by sponsoring someone than by being a therapist for them.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: Because how much time are you actually getting to spend with a human being to make that difference? Yeah. Versus the time you've got to spend, like what you just said, just to get to the human being.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Much less
1: what you got to write up afterwards.
0: Right. Yeah.
1: So, yeah, that, that was a part of it, too, yeah. of course. I get it. But sponsoring, you know, everything you do is about them and it rubs off on you because that's how we stay sober. Yeah. I mean, step 12 isn't about sobering up drunks. It's about staying sober, working with them.
0: We'll be right back. My friends, if you're enjoying listening to AA Recovery interviews, check out my big book podcast, the complete unabridged audio version of the first and second editions of Alcoholics Anonymous. It's an engaging word-for-word, cover-to-cover reading of all 11 chapters and original stories, including rare stories not published in the third or fourth edition. It's a quick and easy way to hear the big book wherever you are, whenever you want. Listen to all 85 episodes by subscribing to the Big Book Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts, or listen on bigbookpodcast.com. You'll know you've arrived when you see our logo, a first-edition Big Book wearing headphones. And we're back. So you went in for additional counseling at, you said, about three years, or was that further, were you further on before you actually did the counseling, did counseling?
1: It must have been after the wreck. Yeah. It must have been 2010. Okay. I'm sorry. Yeah. that, that I, I can't remember for sure now, mm-hmm. Howard, but I think that's right because, uh, yeah, that had to be right because yeah. it's saw her for about seven or eight years.
0: When you were contemplating doing that, um, and this is after you got out of the hospital, did you get feedback like what you just said to me about – Jim, why don't you spend your time in AA sponsoring people rather than doing this for a living or something eight to five every day? Were people pretty supportive of you doing that? They were
1: supportive of me because they already knew that I had done a lot of sponsorship.
0: Yeah, right.
1: You know, when mm-hmm. when Janet died, I, I I wasn't saying no. I had like eight guys, which I right. would never recommend now. I would <laughs> never tell somebody to take on eight sponsees. Yeah. But I wasn't, I was only... Less than two years sober at the time, so yeah. I didn't know any better. Yeah,
0: yeah.
1: And by the time, you know, at in 2010, I was five years sober, but a lot changed between then and now. And uh, I, I think that's me talking about sponsoring someone. You're making a difference quicker. That's not what somebody was saying. Why don't you do that instead of becoming an LCDC? Okay. Yeah, I get so, it. So no, I didn't. I didn't yeah. really get that feedback. Yeah, I get that. You know, when we were walking in here, I was t- telling you very briefly another suicide of my best friend, who I had known, I told you I'd met when I had done my postgraduate studies in London. Hmm. And he went on to win that Van yeah. International Piano uh-huh. Competition. He was a brilliant guy. And we were very, very close and had been since 82. So we put out a record together. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, less than a year after that happened, he had Thanksgiving with my, with my mother and my aunt and my, my cousin. I couldn't be there because the symphony had a concert on Friday and we had the rehearsal on Wednesday. So mm-hmm. I only had the one day up and I couldn't, one day off, I couldn't go up and the way and back down to Houston. Yeah. And, uh. I called him trying to find out if he was going to be going to staying in Fort Worth yeah. because his brother had already committed suicide.
0: His brother committed suicide? Yes. Oh, my
1: So God. he was going down to be with his mother on the holidays. And I called him to try to find out if he was going to be with her or if he was staying in Fort Worth. But I found out later that evening that he was already dead when I left that message. He mm. had died at 5 that afternoon mm. when he had gotten his pistols back from a woman he'd given them to because he was depressed oh, and was man. afraid to have them around. Oh, he convinced man. her he was okay now. And then when he got them back, he laid down on his bed. And there's a guy who had everything yeah. and put a bullet through his head. Yeah. So I'm thinking, you know, wife suicide. Drunk driver put me in a hospital for three and a half months Best friend suicide, lose my career to the drunk driver. When is this going to (laughs) stop? You know?
0: Yeah. Now, when you ask that question, Jim, of whom do you ask that question?
1: I ask it of God but i know the answer already. You do. These things happen to everybody. Yeah. Do i think because i'm a recovering alcoholic i get special treatment? Right. That i don't have to go through life and on life's terms like everybody else in the world does?
0: Yeah.
1: We as recovering people sometimes we get in that that mindset. Yeah. I deserve this. I got sober. No, you don't deserve shit. You you've got what you deserve. You got life. But it's you're on borrowed time now. <laughs> You're on your higher powers' time.
0: You're not yeah, on your time anymore.
1: Yeah, Because yeah. <laughs> left sense. to your devices, you'd be dead.
0: And it's difficult, especially when we're sponsoring different men in different stages of their lives, whether they're terminally ill or men who are going through marital issues or whatever, to turn that into a positive. And the the easiest way I've found to do that, not easy, but, but the, the most effective way, and it works for me, is I say, what you're going through now is a a future gift to somebody else. Your experience going and getting through this is the gift to the next guy who wonders whether he can get through it. And that experience is the gift. So you, you can't know now when that's going to be, but it sounds to me like you've already spread what you have to give from the heart to a lot of people since all that happened to you. Thank you. Yeah. How do you see your relationship with your higher power? And did you have a relationship with the higher power before you came into AA? I had a relationship,
1: but I didn't believe. I thought that God had given up on me. My sponsor told me that I needed to pray on my knees Uh while I was still in the treatment center. Okay. I remember I wanted to wait until nobody could possibly catch me doing this. (laughs) Right. Uh, Most, especially my roommate. So I waited until the the night med call. So he goes down, he's getting his meds, and um, I go up there and I I get on my knees and I'm talking to myself. Okay. Mm -hmm. I'm not talking to God. I'm talking to myself. Uh And I hear that door open behind me. And I'm fuck. So I get off my knees as fast as I can. I get under the under the blanket, but <laughs> he comes in, and he said, Oh dude, man, listen, I'm sorry. If you need some quiet time, just let me know. <laughs> <laughs> he thought he thought I've you know, masturbating, gotcha. <laughs> not praying. <laughs> so that was my first prayer to God after my sponsor had told me you gotta start praying.
0: Oh my gosh.
1: And for the next seven months. It was me talking to myself. And somewhere after, uh, you know, my sponsor uh, was one of those who took you through five, six, and seven in one city. Right. And it was a long, long city. So he said, on your way home, you know, think about, it's an hour drive. So Mm -hmm. be still for an hour. Think about anything. Anyway, one night I was, uh, I guess the way I had always felt the presence of God was through music. I would get um, the goosebumps when in certain passages Mm. I would cry in certain passages in certain pieces like I did last night. I wasn't playing, but I was hearing. Anyway, one night I was praying and uh, I was on my knees. And you know that story at the end of uh, We Agnostics about the preacher's kid? And he says, this is going to be told later, but on page 192, actually. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we're going to t- tell it to you a little bit to you right now. Mm-hmm. And it gets to that point where he says, um, he says uh, he felt he at once a, a great, the waves came through him like a great tide at flood. Yeah. It was like that. I was on my knees praying and goosebumps started in my head and huh. went all the way through my body, through my knees out my feet, wave after wave, each one stronger than the one that came before until I didn't think I could even take another. They were so overpowering. And then another came. Nothing like that has ever happened again. But it doesn't have
0: to. Now that happened when you were about seven months, seven months sober.
1: That was my spiritual awakening. Hmm. Just it was a it was a burning bush. I had a burning bush
0: experience. Were you waiting for one, or, or yeah. was it completely by surprise? Completely by surprise. You know that's such an amazing realization when it happens. It's like it's like you want to hold that moment, hold it forever, that particular feeling forever. That con- it sounds like conscious contact.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Exactly.
0: Have you had that kind of experience since?
1: Not through prayer.
0: Mm. I've had it through music. Through music.
1: Yeah. One more, one more time. Recently, actually, yeah, I don't remember it because it was during the COVID mess. Mm-hmm. Um, I was praying on my knees, and just a little bit, nothing like, nothing like that night.
0: Sure, yeah,
1: but I, I, well, I was touched briefly mm-hmm. with, with some, with the same goosebumps while I was praying. Wow, and I thought, oh, that's not, that's what that felt like. But it was, it was just a little reminder. I'm still here, Jim.
0: Yeah, that's a good feeling. <laughs> I'm still here. That's a good, that's a really good feeling. I've had some experiences like that myself and it's an amazing realization that you're not alone, you know, and what I heard you just say, I've heard music often referred to as a, a meditative prayer or that it can have those same kinds of effects on people. And it's amazing that it does on you after everything you've been through to be able to get, have that same response that wasn't lost to you along the way there's certain pieces that
1: i can just put on and i know it's going to happen yeah and that's
0: nice too yeah yeah um so look at looking back in the in the last several years i know and we've we've spent a nice amount of time talking about the what it's been like since you got sober. And that's usually the part of most people's stories that they leave for the very end and then they give it five minutes. You got five minutes yeah, left. The, the, to begin and, to then, and then I got sober and everything has been great in the last 30 years, the end. It's like, wait a second. Hi. But you've talked about getting through some really, really difficult times. And I know that you were also recently dealing with having to, uh, with your mother, And I know that that was another challenge that you faced and got through. Is there anything that you would want to say about that?
1: That I'm grateful I got to be the son God meant for me to be. Mm -hmm. I um, had Christmas with mom in 2019, Uh and then I was not allowed to see her again because of the pandemic until October of 2020. By that time, I didn't realize how bad her mind had gone. She quit paying Medicare, and Medicare cut her off, and her health insurance cut her off. And she had just gotten out of the hospital. When I went up there in October, this was month six, right? They were going to cut her off the end of October, but I didn't know this yet. Uh I had to hospitalize her for pneumonia, a white blood cell infection, anemia, and um, sepsis. And the to-do list when she got checked out of the hospital you know, Fort Worth Heart, the lung consultants, yeah. the Center for Cancer and Blood Disorders, Texas Oncology, her her regular family physician. Sure. She couldn't do any of this because she couldn't walk anymore. Hmm. And I'm taking her to I, every time I'm going up there for a week every month, starting in November of 2020, after I've just been up there in October of 2020, taking her to these doctors all the way through August of 21, when I finally moved her out of her apartment at the at the uh, at the uh, progressive living center, mm-hmm. out of her apartment and down to the skilled nursing floor, mm. and it was at that point we'd already done three rounds of targeted radiation, which I didn't think we should do, right? But we did it, and it was at this point that we finally said, we meaning God, me, and the doctors, you're done now, Jim. You've done everything you can do. Mm. It's out of your hands. I'm like, well, how much time does she have? We can't tell you more than two weeks, less than two years, Mm -hmm. but you don't need to come to doctors appointment. We're not going to treat this anymore. So you're done. And that was hard at first, but now it's been a relief because it means that when I go up there, I don't have to, I don't have to get all this stuff done with a million different doctors and lab results and this and that and the other. When I go see my mom, I can just go see her. Now I miss my brilliant mother because I missed that tremendously. Mm-hmm. But you know what? She's happy now. Yeah. And before she wasn't a happy person. Yeah. She was a loner, still is, of course, cuz she was a loner all those years and she's 91. By that time you're you're probably a loner anyway <laughs> yeah, cuz all probably. your friends are gone. Yeah, they're all gone. Um but she's happy and I'd rather see her like this actually. I'm happy that she's happy. Yeah. She still knows me. I can't have Arguments about the future of the world
0: with her. Right.
1: But, and when, and it's not about how much can I get done? Can I make all these appointments? But also, every time I say goodbye, I have to remember you may not see your mom again. Yeah. She came down with COVID, Howard. Oh, no. She was diagnosed the week after Christmas. I had just come down with it the week before she did. And oh. of course, I'm beating up myself yeah, about did I get it my mom co- COVID, right, right, you know? Right. But it turned out that. That staff members on that floor got it, yeah, sure. and I mean everybody was yeah, getting everybody. it. She made. I, I was convinced that I was going to get a phone call because she was highly compromised through emphysema and lung cancer. But she's fine. She made it through that. And I. I here's the, what's amazing. I asked myself, okay, God, I understand why you told me you're not done with me yet. You had a chance to take me several, and mm-hmm. you haven't. What do you still want from Mom? What effect do you want her to have on others that you're keeping her around now? Mm-hmm. At 91, when she can't make it to the bathroom, she has to, right. you know, it's hard on, well, it's not yeah. hard on her now, but I'm asking, I'm just, I ask God about that. What What is it? And who knows? It's like you said earlier, we won't know the difference she's made until maybe some nurse or some doctor who sees her is working with someone else. And remembers my mother or something about her that they can pass on.
0: Hmm.
1: So I think it works. You don't have to be in recovery for that to to work.
0: Well, yeah, yeah. (laughs) And and to have somebody in recovery like you, though, who can put a name to those things as you see them, I think is really important. I think being able to acknowledge something, it, it animates it. As you're talking about your mother, I can see... That what you're doing is good for her, it's good for you. Who knows why you're doing it, except it's the right thing to do at the time, right? Yeah, it's the next right thing. So, when was the last time you saw her? It was Christmas. Christmas, okay.
1: So, I'll be going up again in
0: February. Now, do you have siblings? No.
1: No, I'm the last of her side and dad's side both.
0: Really? Wow.
1: I have a cousin, but he uh, didn't have children either. Hmm. But, you know, I... My life now isn't about those things that happened then. Yeah. You know, I have a wonderful life now. I have a wonderful woman in my life. I have uh, for four years now. And uh, and I love her deeply. It's hard on her, you know, for someone in recovery. it has got to be hard on people.
0: <laughs> Is she in recovery too? No. My wife isn't either, but she's really supportive. And she's always been patient with me and my meeting schedules and everything else. And... We've been married thirty five years over the years. the two of us have been able to find some balance and it's worked out it's worked out fairly well. What I wanted to ask you you 've spoken of the tragedies and the gifts that have come out of those tragedies, but you just spoke about another gift, and that is this relationship that you have yeah yeah we met it's kind of funny. we met a thing called it's just lunch
1: and I was supposed to meet her. They set up the dates yeah. at restaurants. Or time. I was mm-hmm. supposed to meet her, and uh, I fell asleep, and I missed the date. I stood oh, no. her up oh, no. before I'd ever met her. And uh, I begged, it's just lunch, to, to to ask her if she would give me one more chance. Yeah. And, and she, they said, she's, she's not going to give you another oh. chance, Jim. You stood her up. And
0: she did. She gave me another chance. And that doesn't happen in that deal, does no. it?
1: No. And we met, and that, and 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 we've been dating ever since.
0: Another god deal, huh? <laughs> it was. It was. That's it's amazing. Truly, truly is. <laughs> and you, and, and you deserve all the joy that it sounds to me like you're getting from that relationship.
1: Yeah, I, I don't want to think in terms of deserve, because uh, that gets me out of the gratitude of it. I need to be. I don't mind you saying it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's, <laughs> but, you're right, you're I, right. I can't think I deserve this. I, I need to stay, stay God's grace. You know, there was a man who uh, came to those meetings that I, when I got sober the very first, first time. Yeah. He's passed away now. But I will never forget his definition of grace. And he said, it's a gift, a gift, a gift. received, neither deserved nor earned. God sprinkles his grace universally on everyone. Mm -hmm. But how many people are willing to receive it? Yeah. Yeah. You can't earn it. You're never going to do anything to deserve it. Will you just accept it? And so many of us that need this program, if we're going to have a life, won't.
0: Becoming spiritually awakened is a process. It's a process that you've gone through, that I've gone through maybe struggled through, maybe had some second thoughts or doubts about. But, you know, the 12th step is where it's at for a reason, is my <laughs> feeling, you know, because if you can, it's like, if it's, it's, it's like one of those games, you know, uh, get through round one, you can get to round two and, you know, you got 12 rounds. And by the end of that, having had a spiritual awakening as the result of all these first 11 things, that's when you get it. And so... What you're saying about grace and how we can have it—we may not feel we deserve it. That's why, whenever I hear people say, "Pray for something," I'm a firm believer that the bet, some of the best things about prayer is that prayer is a great distraction from thinking about myself for a, a very small period of time. It makes it makes a difference. Do you ever get that feeling?
1: Yeah. Just for a little bit. I also think that I'm glad you said that because yeah. so many people in AA they you, they talk and they they're they they're not giving themselves credit for becoming the man God meant for them to be. We we all tend to that, do that awfulizing, catastrophizing, beating ourselves up, right. and it's like we never grow right right and i hear that so much in the rooms and i think i want to i want to just shout out loud you're not that person anymore you, yeah. you keep on saying i'm selfish i'm self-centered i'm manipulative i'm dishonest i have an inferiority right, complex right, right. all these things that everybody in the whole room
0: has yeah
1: but they do get better we do get better we don't do that we we're not lying we're not dishonest anymore we sure, we do selfish things, but so does the rest of the world. We're human beings.
0: And compared to the way we were doing those things, we've diminished the occurrence. God will probably never get rid of those character defects that I'm still wanting to use or that I still use. But I'm not using them as frequently. I'm not using them to the degree that I was before. Some of them are passing thoughts. Some of them are misguided thinking but it's not like it was before where those things were literally ruling my life
1: and when we act on them we can clean up our side of the street
0: absolutely and that's what's great about coming to meetings because we can get reminded of that by people like you by people like me by people like all of the men in the meeting tonight There were it was a, a, a really terrific meeting the mix of people was was really great so we've talked about all of the great things that sobriety has brought to you, Jim. And it's such a blessing to me to have been able to spend this time getting to know you better and knowing what you've gone through and what you've gotten through, any part of which is inspirational. I'm glad you're still here Do any other gifts or anything else that you want to kind of toss in there that uh, sobriety has meant to you over the last number of years.
1: The relationship with God yeah. is the biggest one.
0: That's beautiful.
1: And and I would uh, the only thing I would say, I'm sure everybody that you've interviewed has said, said this, but there's absolutely nothing a drink will make better. Yeah, yeah.
0: That's a beautiful way to end. Jim, I love you. You're a terrific member of Alcoholics Anonymous, and I'm looking forward to our continuing friendship. It's been really great being able to go to meetings with you and seeing you all those times on, on the zoom was, was really phenomenal. So
1: Howard, and I'm very grateful for the opportunity.
0: Well, my friends, that's it for this episode of AA Recovery Interviews. I want to thank my guest, Jim D for sharing his story and thank you for tuning in. If you enjoyed AA Recovery interviews, will you help me spread the word by sharing it with your fellow AAs, both before and after meetings? As the number of listeners grows, this podcast will be of greater help to more and more alcoholics worldwide. Of course, you can listen to all of the interviews on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Pandora, Stitcher, and other podcast providers. Or tell Siri, Google Assistant, or Alexa, Play A.A. Recovery Interviews podcast or visit our website, aarecoveryinterviews.com to listen to every interview, share your comments, and also contact us. If you want to email me directly, it's Howard at aarecoveryinterviews.com. By the way, this podcast strictly adheres to A.A.'s 12 Traditions and all General Service Office Guidelines for Safeguarding Anonymity Online. I pay all podcast production costs. No advertising is allowed, and no one receives financial gain from the show. AA Recovery Interviews and my guests do not speak for or represent AA at large. This podcast is simply my way of giving back to AA, that which has been so freely given to me. The next episode of AA Recovery Interviews is on the way, so keep coming back. It'll be here soon.